0: You're listening to PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome to Animal Rights
1: on Pet Life Radio. It's your host Tim Link, and I'm so glad you're joining us today. My special guest today is sports columnist and author Robert Weintraub. And Robert's gonna be here talking to us about his recently released book, No Better Friend: One Man, One Dog, and the extraordinary story of courage and survival in World War II. So it's really interesting to dig into that find out a little bit about the key characters in the book and a little bit about the history of dogs, war dogs, and going back to World War II. So it's gonna be exciting to talk to Robert about that. But before we do, I have to announce, I have a big announcement. I've just recently released two meditation albums for your enjoyment, and my enjoyment, and and your animal's enjoyment. (sighs) The CDs are called uh, Relax the Mind and Body Meditation, and also Guided Meditation, Connecting with the Animals. Both can be purchased and downloaded now by visiting CD Baby, or you can purchase them on iTunes or Amazon. Take a look at it, uh, cdbaby.com forward slash Tim Link, and you can listen to a little snippet of each of the meditations. And then hopefully you'll like them well enough that you'll download them and uh, get your body and mind relaxed and learn how to connect with those animals. So, once again, it's relax the mind and body meditation guided meditation connecting with the animals by tim link check it out today let me know what you think i hope you enjoy it we're gonna come back right after these commercial breaks with author robert weintraub talk to him about his book no better friend everybody hang tight you're listening to the animal rights show on pet life radio sit stay we'll be right back after a short
0: pause well four to be exact Listen, cat people, it's just litter. Until you realize those big boxes
2: mean big smells, big messes, and big money. Switch to World's Best Cat Litter, the only litter with concentrated power. It guarantees less smells, less work, all with less litter. Try the small bag that lasts one cat 30 days and you'll realize it's just litter. Unless it's World's Best Cat Litter. Find it at Target, Walmart, and at your local grocery and pet stores. Amazing Pet Expos is coming to a city near you. Admission is always free, and your pet is welcome. Shopping, adoptions, free nail trims, discounted shots and microchipping, agility, a pet costume contest, and much more. Plus, meet the guys from Animal Planet's hit
1: TV series Tank and Pit Boss online at AmazingPetExpos.com. Bring your pets to the pet.
0: Let's talk pets on petliferadio.com. Welcome back.
1: Welcome back to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. This is your host, Tim Link, and joining me now is author Robert Weintraub. Robert, welcome to the show. Hey, Tim. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. It's a great book, a lot of great details in here. Tell the listeners a little bit more about uh, the book itself.
2: Absolutely. Well, it's a, uh, it's a true story about a very special prisoner of war who was held in World War II by the Japanese, very special in that she was, as you might surmise, a dog, a dog named Judy, an uh, English Pointer, in fact, a purebred Pointer, who was a uh, mascot on a Royal Navy ship before and then during the war. When war broke out in the, in the Pacific, she was based in Singapore and, through an incredible series of events, wound up being captured, along with many of her crewmates, as you would expect, with by the Japanese, and then uh, was held in several camps, mostly in Sumatra, the largest island in the chain that we now call Indonesia, Then it was called the Dutch East Indies. And uh, yeah, she was in fact made an official prisoner of war thanks to uh, a daring gambit by her best friend in the camp who managed to uh, bribe the Japanese commander uh, in order to get that little tissue, thin tissue protection for her and uh, wound up making animal history. And uh, she survived the war, came back home and was greeted as a hero back in the United Kingdom after the war was over for her incredible story of survival.
1: You no, know, and it, it amazed me because I have to admit, when I first got the book, you know, we've we've been very fortunate recently to have a lot of uh, what we'll call war dog books. You know, talking a little bit about the service dogs in the wars and how the uh, dogs are soldiers in the war and the good things that happen and the great service that they did, and then what happens sometimes afterwards once they come back home if they get a chance to come back home. So when I first picked this up, I thought, okay, let's take a look at it's another one of those stories, and it was totally different. I mean, how in the world, Judy? As a POW, how'd you get yourself wrapped around that idea, or how'd that idea come about, or the story come about?
2: Yeah, great question. I uh, was just doing a little bit of light reading, as I do, through uh, a book called The People's Almanac, which was uh, this kind of 1970s compendium of facts and figures and esoterica and just a bunch of random stuff all thrown together in a book. And I've loved that book ever since I was a kid, so I still have it. And every time to time, I take it down. And I just was flipping through it, and I saw a listing called Amazing Animals. And one of those animals, it was a little title called the Pooch Pal, and sure enough, it told the story of Judy just in a couple of paragraphs—not uh, not too much detail—but of course, I'm a writer, I'm an author, I, you know, I'm always on the lookout for a good story. So I decided, all right, this is worthy of some further research. And as I dug into it a little bit more, and really, for lack of a better term, sniffed out more about Judy's. Incredible story and story even before the war started and after. I realized that there was a book there. It wasn't just the usual, as you alluded to. It wasn't just a, a classic war dog story in the sense that she was trained to be a war dog in any way and and went to war with a handler and you know saw some combat or whatever and then you know came home and had either a good result or a bad result back after the war was over. In her case, you know, she was just kind of thrust into it by accident. She was adopted by some sailors. Served on a ship that ship was sunk <laughs> at war, and uh, she went on to you know show incredible bravery and, and courage in a lot of different ways. She was sunk again a second time at sea during a, a prisoner transfer. She led her uh, party of survivors across uh, the Sumatran interior, the rainforest, and, and braved crocodiles. Actually, was slashed by a crocodile at one point to uh, lead them to what they hoped was safety. As it turned out, it wasn't, and they got captured. And you know she was right there alongside these prisoners, these men who suffered immensely at the hands of the Japanese. And uh, while Judy, uh, you know, managed to make it out the other side, she certainly suffered just as much, if not more so, you know, by the fact that she had to scrounge for herself a, a great deal of that time. And the men really drew a lot of uh, sustenance from the fact that this dog was surviving. And, you know, in her example, they figured, they said to themselves, literally, we can do it too. If she can do it, we can do it. And uh, a lot of men survived too, otherwise might not have. And that's a, a large reason why she was granted, you know, such post-war, you know, heroism and medals. And, and it was really looked to as a symbol in the immediate aftermath of the war for being a, such a survivor. And it's really a you know, story we can take to heart, not just because a dog did it, but anyone who went through that kind of situation situation and the bond that she had with her all the prisoners that especially one in particular really also resonated as well
1: wow and the one that she bonded with the close or the, she was closest to did they have a long history together or was it something that was formed at one of the camps how did that really yeah
2: it, it, no it was formed in the camps she was obviously close with several different servicemen along the way. You know, starting with her original boat, uh, which was a gunboat in in China, serving in Shanghai and along the Yangtze River. There was a gunboat that protected British interests there. And then, as it, as the you know her life in the war went along, she was close with other various uh, you know, sailors on these boats. But. She never really formed that type of a bond as she did when she met this guy in camp, and he was not in the navy; he was actually in the air force. His name was Frank Williams, and he was a radar specialist who was in Singapore and had evacuated at the same time Judy did on her ship. Both their ships were sunk independently of each other, and they both basically swam for survival and made it onto desert islands and were eventually rescued. But then came up short in their lunge to uh, to beat the Japanese out of the area. So both were captured independently, and then in one. of the camps in 1942, Judy was kind of nosing around looking for some handouts food-wise and it wasn't much on offer and uh, the men were certainly, you know, kind of getting toward the point of starvation at that point. And Frank reached out and he gave his entire bowl of rice, which was not that much, but it was all he had pretty much for the day. And he shared the entire thing, gave the whole thing to Judy. And uh, Judy, of course, slurped the whole thing right up. And then uh, immediately after that, they were sort of bonded for life, just had it formed a really intense and immediate connection that is really hard to explain, even compared to the connection that she had with you know, her former best friends, quote unquote, on the ships and elsewhere in the camps. Judy and Frank really formed this amazing bond and, uh, you know, led to them really sustaining one another and in a lot of ways saving each other's life.
1: That's amazing. I mean, it's just truly amazing when you're thinking about that type of situation. I mean, it's hard to fathom it based in today's real world, but you know, going back to those times and that relationship, and it just shows that relationship between humans and canines, or humans and animals in general, is it's so powerful.
2: Yeah, it's really true, and, and it's you know, it's both poorly understood and not completely explored, maybe you know, as it should be. I, mean, I think one of the things that really piqued my interest as I was doing the research was sort of how, you know, the kind of cross species relationships, for lack of a better term, really hasn't really been, you know, we we kind of tend to think of it only from our end, you know, only from the human aspect of Mm -hmm. it. What can the dogs do for us? Or what can any animal do for us? And we don't really tend to explore how it's a mutual beneficial relationship in other ways, except in a case like this, where you have a concrete example where both man and dog really helped each other in so many different ways it wasn't one sided and you know they they were immediately and and sustained this relationship and it saw them through and you know after you, that's an extreme circumstance obviously and once they went through it they were never going to leave each other's side until one of them died of course but you know i think in a lot of cases you see that in everyday situations you know you don't have to necessarily be held prisoner of war by the japanese to form that kind of relationship with an animal and uh one of the things that i I really didn't explore too much in the book, but really thought about as I was doing it was, you know, how much more we can, you know, kind of explore in terms of what we're getting out of animals, pets or otherwise. And how you know these relationships really make us who we are, and make the animals change the animals for better, or for worse, and uh, and really explore it in more detail. And I think hopefully going forward that'll that'll happen in richer detail.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I talk all the time about how the not only the bond between uh, humans and the animals and, and canines in this particular situation, but also the the purpose. You know, I'm a firm believer that we all have a purpose, animals included, and I have to believe that as bad of a situation as this is, there was a purpose for Judy being there to help out, to show the way, to sort of uh, give them something to, to fight for.
2: Yeah, I don't think there's any question. And it wasn't just, you know, kind of theoretical. Uh, there were plenty of circumstances, countless circumstances, where one of the prisoners would be, you know, getting beaten up, basically, by one of the guards. And Judy would interfere, throw her body in between the two, and distract the guard. Bark, gna- growl, bare her teeth, and get the guards to chase her. She would then disappear back into the jungle. And by the time the guards realized what had happened, they'd kind of forgotten all about beating up the uh, the original prisoner. And so many prisoners were spared in that way that you know it wasn't just like as I alluded to earlier. Hey, this dog is is a great survivor. She's really helping. What an example she's setting. Judy was also setting an example just. Purely physically, by actually stepping in between these uh, the guards with their rifles and the helpless prisoners. So she was doing it on a purely physical basis as well, and obviously that you know that that rose her status immensely in all of their eyes. And you know there were various other times when Judy performed what you can only call heroics. I mean, you know, it, it's it was an amazing circumstance, and you know the fact that she managed to get away with it all and, and be liberated and come out the other end really completes the story and made it really uh, really special. And so. I was honored to
1: tell it. Absolutely, that's. You did a great job with them. it's just an amazing, amazing story. So, uh, big kudos for you there.
0: Thank
1: you. I have to ask you about the the novel as a whole because obviously this is a little bit of a departure from your norm. You know, you've written some uh, great books like The House That Ruth Built and Victory Season, and well known for uh, your you know being a well known uh, sports columnist for uh, numerous magazines and publications. First of all, how was it to sort of step away from that aspect of it and write something that was? a little bit of a departure.
2: Yeah. Great question. Well, you know, it it was certainly a departure, you know, there was a little bit of trepidation about it, but in another way, I was really anxious to do that. You know, it's, I wrote two books about baseball as you alluded to, and I write about sports sort of, you know, every day and have done for many years. So in that sense, you know, those muscles are fully developed. There's no real, I don't want to say there's no challenge because it's always a challenge to do something well, but I'm very confident in my ability to do that. Let's put it this way. After all this time, I have plenty of reps in that, in that area. But this was something completely different, and it was a challenge, and it was something, you know, I, I felt fairly confident about my ability to do it, but I wasn't 100% sure, and I didn't know, you know, sort of how deep down the well I was going to have to go in terms of research and in terms of writing about areas. Of, I consider myself a, a fairly uh, knowledgeable World War II historian, but I'm not an expert by any stretch, so there was going to be, you know, that learning curve as well. It was something that I wanted to take on because of those reasons, as much as it was obviously a great story, and I I didn't want to let the story go. I felt compelled to write about it, but I also wanted to challenge and to step away from my norm and to do something a little bit different. I think that uh, that's important in any profession, and certainly in writing, because you can get stayed and kind of... Laps into a comfort zone very easily, and before you know it, you kind of lost your uh, your mojo, (laughs) if you will. So it was important for me to be able to to do something outside the realm. And you know, my previous book, which was the Victory Season, as you mentioned, was about baseball, but it was also about baseball during and immediately after World War II. So there was a certain natural, you know, kind of left turn. I just stepped away from the baseball part of it and embraced the World War II aspect of it and added, you know, an animal story. (laughs) So we'll see what happens next. But it wasn't as radical a departure as it might have than otherwise. But it certainly was a challenge and one I think that uh, I was very glad to, to have the opportunity to do. No question about that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, maybe the next book will be uh, Animal Mascots in Baseball and Other Sports. I, I don't know if there's <laughs> something there. If you do write about it, I'll expect my royalty check in the mail. Yeah,
2: you'll get a come. Uh, let me jot that down. Hang on a second. Okay, good. Yeah, all right. So, uh, yeah. so it's already in the mail for you. You know that.
1: Yeah, put it in the file with other bad ideas people have presented <laughs> to me. <laughs> well, listen, we're going to take a quick commercial break Uh, we'll come back and continue our conversation with robert weintraub talk to him a little bit more about his book and i also want to talk to him about his writing styles and comparisons and you know what it's like to be a writer on a daily basis so everybody just hang tight you're listening to the animal Rights show on pet life radio
0: sit stay we'll be right back after a short pause well four to be exact Jill, I see you and Bella are enjoying this lovely day as well. It's a perfect day for a walk. Isn't that right, Bella? And what a colorful ID tag you have, Bella. It certainly puts my Rusty's boring engraved tag to shame. Isn't it great? It's a dog tag art tag. Dog tag art? Yeah. Dog tag art makes the world's coolest pet ID tags. Pick from hundreds of cute designs or upload your photos or artwork to create a unique tag of your own. They even give you four lines of text on the back of the tag for important contact information. I love it! But do they hold up? We have to replace Rusty's metal tags so often because the information wears away. Dog tag art tags are some of the highest quality pet tags out there. They're made with super durable stainless steel. Your information is always legible and the tags are guaranteed for life. Well, I'm sold. Where can I get my Dog Tag Art Tag for Rusty? DogTagArt.com Sounds great. We can't wait to get online and get a tag of our own. DogTagArt.com We keep best friends together. Use the coupon code RADIO for a 25% discount off any tag. Active4Pets is a new wellness platform and app that helps pet parents save time and money on their vet bills. Stop paying for unnecessary vet treatments. Consult with a vet online. Get unlimited access to your pet's entire health history from any computer or smartphone with the Active4Pets app. Vaccinations, medications, Test results and more. Active4Pets gives you access to a team of expert vets for non emergency care. Make an appointment before, during, or after office hours. Skip the waiting room and get a secure online vet consult on your schedule. Taking care of your pets is as easy as it gets with Active4Pets. Ready to try Active 4 Pets? Listeners get 40% off a one-year membership. To get this great offer, use promo code PETLIFE on the sign-up page of Active4Pets.com. That's A-C-T-I-V, the number 4, P-E-T-S dot com. Or call 888-512-2848. Let's Talk Pets. Let's Talk Pets. On PetLife Radio. PetLife Radio. PetLife Radio.
1: PetLiferadio.com Welcome back to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Hey, another quick promotional plug for yours truly my upcoming book, Talking with Dogs and Cats, Join the Conversation to Improve Behavior and Bond with Your Animals, is now available for pre-order. You can go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound Books, Books a Million, and other fine retailers and order a copy today. It will be uh, in all major bookstores starting June 2nd, so it's right around the corner. We're really excited about that. Uh, you can find out more about uh, me, the workshops, appearances, events, everything going on by going to Talking with Dogs. It's talking It's TalkingWithDogsAndCats.com. And you can find out about the book. So we're real excited about that. I'm real excited about that. Hopefully you are too. So everybody check out Talking With Dogs and Cats by yours truly, Tim Link. Hey, we're here with uh, author uh, Robert Weintraub talking to me about his, his book, uh, No Better Friend, One Man, One Dog, and Their Extraordinary Story of Courage and Survival and More Too. Now, Robert, I want to talk to you a little bit about your writing process, styles, habits. I always like to know, do you have typically when you're writing, whether it's an article or writing uh, a novel or a book like this, a historical book, do you have a process? Are you one of those early morning 4 a.m. kind of guys that have to get up and do it? Or are you one of those guys that, oh my God, the deadline is here tomorrow. I need to punch something out the door. <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah, I definitely fall more into the uh, latter camp than the, uh, than the 4 a.m. let's get to it camp, for sure. I do tend to do it every day. I I think that is important that you get at least something down, you know, whether it's even a sentence or you just copy a quote that somebody else said and get that into your uh, blank file there. Anything to uh, make it feel like you actually have accomplished something that day, I think is important. But, yeah, I tend to gain strength as the day goes along. So I usually uh, get a, try to get three or four hours of work done after lunch at a minimum. And after that, you know, it, depending on, as you say, the deadline, how close I am, how, how much procrastination I've already previously done, <laughs> I uh, <laughs> might put in some more time at night, depending. But generally speaking, those afternoon hours are when I, I tend to work. And, I, and you know, I have a home office, quote unquote, but I really tend to prefer being out and about in public, a coffee shop, you know, someplace, even, even if it's just like a park. So any kind of setting where there's other people and some ambient noise around and, you know, maybe the occasional face, to stare off at and kind of contemplate and you know, not just be in your own little world all the time. I think that's kind of self-defeating after a while and it, it helps to get... The, I come from a television background and I worked in sports television for many years. And it's a very collaborative process, obviously, and you're obviously out at events and you're interacting at all times with other people. And It's definitely different from writing and I understood that getting into it when I started to write more of a full-time job, but uh, I try and get as much of my former life in terms of you know, just being around other people as much as possible as I can, just because I'm used to it and it helps me. It might not be for everybody. Plenty of people I know demand, you know, <laughs> perfect silence and, and, you know, they draw the window shades and they retreat into their own world and that's great if it works for you, but for me, it, it doesn't at all. I'm I'm kind of the opposite. I, I'm happy to write in the middle of Yankee Stadium if it, uh, if it works out, uh, <laughs> and if I can get an internet connection in there. And that's really how I go. So I'm sort of the opposite of the uh, cliched up first thing in the morning and retreat into the uh, into the dark cavern to write guy. I'm the uh, put it off as long as possible and do it in public if I possibly can guy.
1: There you go. There you go. But I think it's really uh, interesting to hear you say that, you know it's it's important to do something every day, write something every day. And and yeah. I think it's important. I mean, whether we, you have a uh, you know an article or a book or something that's due or not, you know, it's important to be able to keep those uh, writing muscles and ideas flowing. I think.
0: Yeah,
2: and it keeps just sort of the what I call the tyranny of the blank page, you know, kind of out of, your, uh, out of your psyche. It's very easy, as you know, as anyone knows who's tried to write, it's very easy to get distracted by or to just kind of let the amount of pages you have ahead of you to kind of overwhelm you. And the best kind of uh, defense against that is to break your project, whatever it is. Uh, if it's a book, you just, you know, I tend to break it down into just this chapter or just this little section or j- even just this paragraph sometimes and work on that and get that to a pretty good state. And then I feel, all right, I've accomplished something. There's a sense of completion there. And I don't have to think about the other 350 pages I have yet to do, or, you know, or even if it's just five more pages I have to do, that sort of is put into the, uh, the back burners of your mind. And you have much more of a, uh, you know, a sense that I'm going pretty well here. I'm, I'm achieving something. This is good. Now I just have to repeat that. And well, before you know it, you'll have an article or a book, you know, or even just a, a short column. And uh, uh, like I say, it, that definitely is how I approach it. And it's worked for me so far. It might not work for everybody, but I do think that getting something down and just having it in front of you and having some thoughts and some, some words on the paper, and, and then you can go from there. That's really important. And if you can do that every day, that'll really help you uh, in the big picture.
1: Yeah. Now, this book, obviously, there's a ton of research that I imagine went into it, and it's quite a hefty piece of reading, so there's a lot of good stuff in there. What about the timing for it? How long did it take you to do the research and put the old uh, pen to paper? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and get get it all ready to go before even the publishers get a hold of it to uh, you know edit and do all their wonderful magic.
2: Right. Uh, well, you know, as I would say, the, you don't really finish a book. They just kind of take it away from you uh, until <laughs> you're finished. So yeah, it could have gone on for much longer, but uh, at a certain point you just got to release it and uh, let the public have their say. But the uh, total elapsed time, I suppose, was from the time I first read about Judy to the time that the book came out was about 20 months, so a little bit short of two years. In that time, as you say, there was obviously quite a bit of research. I went to London and to all over England, really all over the United Kingdom for uh, various reasons to do research, because obviously so much of this happened involving British sailors and soldiers and, and airmen. So there was a critical element there to try and fill in gaps, and I did a lot of I hired a researcher who helped me as well to just kind of go through the thousands and thousands of documents that are available to kind of pick out the ones that were really important. And then, of course, the writing, you know, generally speaking, I prefer to get as much research done ahead of time and then use that to write and kind of go on a big writing spree. In this case, because there was so much research involved and it was... Kind of as I went, there was a lot of it, you know I couldn't get it all done ahead of time, so I was writing and researching sort of you know at the same time contemporaneously and that was a different approach for me and a, and a bit of a challenge uh, as it turned out, but not a crushing one and uh, every time I thought I had a handle on the material, there would be some other document or some other fact or some other avenue of research that I could go down and That's great. And that's what you really want. You'd rather have too much story rather than not enough story, obviously. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it also came to a point I I had to turn it in. I had a deadline and my editors got a hold of it. And after that, it's sort of you're just triaging until the uh, the day they say no more. And uh, it's a book now. Long story short, it was a lot of research, as you say, and, and a good deal of writing as I was doing it.
1: Absolutely. A lot of research and a lot of time in pubs. So that works out well. I think it's the story to great success.
2: <laughs> That's right. You can't complain about that combination, no doubt about it.
1: No, I hate that when they make me go into the pubs and talk to people. Yeah. I just hate that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Robert, once everybody picks up a copy of uh, No Better Friend, what would you hope after they read the book that they walk away with? What would be one or two things that you think, wow, they got this out of the book, then I've done my job?
2: Yeah, good question. I think first and foremost is just how you know how amazing a bond is possible between a man and a dog, you know, and, and it doesn't necessarily, or a man and any animal really, or a woman and, 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 and an animal. And, you know, the fact that it took these extreme incredible circumstances in this particular case to make it happen doesn't necessarily have to be the case, as I, I think I alluded to earlier. You know, th- this kind of thing is certainly possible, I feel like, between man and dog or man and animal and in, in other circumstances and in everyday life. And, you know, I'd like to think that. Somebody who reads the book will turn to either their pet or contemplate giving a pet of their own and, you know, trying to form a similar bond with that animal. And I think the animals certainly deserve that, that our best from us. And, you know, certainly Judy was an extreme example, but, you know, in everyday life, we can can all do a better job of, you know, kind of trying to form that kind of lasting connection with our pets and with the animals we come across in the day-to-day circumstances.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Very well put. Very well put. So I've got to ask you: Do you have any furry friends in your family? And if so, <laughs> get, let's give them a shout out right now.
2: Well, it's, it's amazing and coincidental that uh, you that because my uh, my seven year old daughter just uh, today uh, said to me, "Daddy." How can you write about a dog when we don't actually have a dog at home? Oh, gotcha. And I said you got me there. <laughs> That's the perfect question, and the answer is, is that you aren't old enough just yet to get a dog. <laughs> we were waiting for uh, my. I have a seven-year-old and a five-year-old, and you know, I grew up with dogs. I grew up with golden retrievers, and it's you know certainly one of the one of the high points of my youth and, and my young adulthood, I would say, and uh, after that as well. And but I didn't get the dog, the, my first dog, until I was I think ten or eleven. So. And we're waiting until our kids are just a little bit older and more responsible so it doesn't you know, fall all upon daddy. And they are of more physical stature to be able to handle a dog <laughs> rather than be afraid of it at the same time that they have it in their own home. So we're just going to wait a little bit. And uh, I think a dog is on its way, but don't tell my daughter that if you're <laughs> <out there. laughs>
1: I'll make sure she gets a copy of this episode. Don't worry. <laughs> exactly. I don't think there's no better way. A golden retriever and you in the park writing your next great novel. Uh, nice. Uh, I see it now. (laughs) Well, Robert, where can people find out more about you and get a copy of the book and keep track of all your wonderful uh, events and things that you've got going on?
2: Great question. Yeah, you can get the book anywhere. Books are sold or downloaded or listened to. uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Costco, Target, uh, you name it, obviously online. And at my website, which is robweintraub.com, www.robweintraub.com. It's W-E-I-N-T-R-A-U-B, in case you were wondering. And uh, you can buy the book through my website or you can buy it at littlebrown.com, the publisher, Little Brown. Or, you know, just, just enter it into a Google search and somewhere along the way you'll definitely be able to, to buy a copy or download a copy. And the same goes for the website. That'll keep you up to date with all my other writings, mostly about sports, but I, I do dabble into other things. Just today, I had a, a, a piece on uh, foxnews.com about canine post-traumatic stress disorder and you know what I think may have actually befallen Judy after the war and certainly befalls a lot of humans and a lot of soldiers and way more dogs than is probably previously understood, not just dogs that have seen combat, but any dog that's had some kind of trauma in, uh, in his or her background, and that obviously goes for rescue dogs more than probably any other any other variety, so you can check that out at foxnews.com. You know, look out for um, for my name anywhere on the internet or where you can read anything of interest. I'll be there.
1: There you go. Sounds good. So everybody, uh, take a look at everything Rob's got going on. It's robweintraub.com. Definitely pick up a copy of the book. No better friend, one man, one dog, and the extraordinary story of courage and survival in World War II. Rob, hey, thanks for coming on the show. Congratulations again on such a great uh, piece of work, and uh, we look forward to uh, seeing hearing from you. Uh, in the near future.
2: Tim, I greatly appreciate it, man. Thanks so much.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Well, we're coming to the end of the show today. So, I'd like to thank everyone for listening to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. I'd also like to thank our sponsors and producers for making this show possible. To find out more about me, Tim Link, and the other guests I've interviewed on the Animal Rights Show, you can go to petliferadio.com, click on the animal rights icon, and listen to and download all the wonderful interviews and episodes. And while you're there, make sure you check out all the other wonderful hosts and shows on Pet Life Radio. That's petliferadio.com. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for this show, please email me. You can email me at tim at petliferadio.com and I'll be glad to answer your questions, entertain your comments, and bring on the people you want to hear from most. So until next time, write a great story about the animals in your life. Write it in a blog, an article, or in a book. And who knows? You may be the next guest on Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Have a great day.
0: Let's talk pets every week on demand.